Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the precious gift of a Savior who was sent into this world to save men and women from their sin. He was not just an ornament for Christmas time. He was not just a spiritual figurehead, but he lives forever and he still changes people's lives. And Father, we thank you also for the precious gift of the Word of God, which never changes. We believe it, Father. It is inerrant. It is infallible. We've learned to commit ourselves to you through it, to live our lives by it. It's a lamp and it's a light, and we declare tonight that we make it our roadmap. Help us, Father, now as we learn and spiritually assimilate these lessons. In Jesus' name, amen. We began the life of Joseph last week, and we said that it marked the last division of the book of Genesis. Joseph was just a young tyke when God spoke to him through dreams and began to call him and get him ready for a useful ministry. Uh, He was 17 years old, and at that time he is envied by his brothers and gets sent to Egypt. And of course, we learned something very important that it's, I think, good to just recap before we move on. Joseph proves that no matter what your background is, no matter what kind of family life you had, that you can't use that to excuse any kind of aberrant lifestyle. It's, it's possible to live uprightly and righteously, no matter what kind of a family you came from. And just think of Joseph for a minute, one of 13 kids. His dad had four women. There was rape, there was incest, there was murder, there was all sorts of jealousy that went on in his family. And yet in the midst of all of that, he grew up as one who loved the Lord. And one thing about Joseph, he gets down to Egypt in a place that it would be very easy to compromise. There's no other Hebrews in that area. There's no other, for lack of a better term, believers in that area. Uh, speaking in Old Testament terms. And yet, he remains wholly committed to God. In a place where it would be very easy to say, hey, everybody's doing that. This is the Egyptian idolatrous lifestyle. It would be very easy to slip into the same lifestyle as those that were around him, but he didn't do it. He remained committed to his God, and he provides a great lesson. He's also a typical 17-year-old with a lot of ambitions, A lot of exciting plans in his life that get changed, circumvented. God has a whole different set of plans and blueprints for him. Have you ever had God change your plans? You've got it all mapped out. You know exactly what you're going to do. High school, college, career. God says, "Uh uh-uh. I want you over here. I want you doing something entirely different. Now, you may not be open to it. But God is able to put you into a situation against the wall, backed into a corner, pull out your security blanket so you have to be open to it. You might have a great job and you think, oh, this is great. I just want to kind of just sit on it. Walk into your office. Next day, the boss says, don't have enough money. You're laid off. Laid off. God, how could you? Well, Maybe God had a better job for you, but you weren't interested in one. But now you are. 
Now you're really open. God, please. And it could be that God has something better for you, better in his terms, something that would further his plan and expand his kingdom. And so it is with Joseph. This young 17-year-old who I think started out very naive, very innocent. Last week we likened him to Beaver Cleaver. If you're from that era, you remember who he was on television. Just the kind of, well, gee, Wally, what next? And, you know, he goes to his brother's wearing this brightly colored robe that his father gave him. He was a little bit spoiled. His father pandered to him and to Benjamin, perhaps more than the other kids. And here he is in this brightly colored robe with long sleeves on it, a mark of rulership, uh, an obvious white-collar worker in the midst of his blue-collared brothers. And he comes up to him and says, Hey, I just dreamed a great dream. We were out in the field binding sheaves, and your sheaves bow down to my sheaf. Isn't that great? And they hated him because of the dream. Then he got another dream and told him the second dream. There was the sun and the moon, which is mom and dad, and all of the stars, the 11 stars and the moon and the sun, bow down to me, my star. I was really the star. This time his father rebukes him. But later on sends Joseph out to check on his brothers as they're up north in Shechem tending his father's flocks. And they see Joseph coming afar off, and they come up with a plot, a plan, to sell him to the Ishmaelites that are traveling on their way down to Egypt. And uh, chapter 38 is sort of a parenthesis, and chapter 39 takes us where Joseph is in Egypt. What is God doing with Joseph? Well, developing his faith. How does it come? How do you develop your faith? How do you become strong in your faith? Do you read a book on faith? Do you attend seminars on faith? Do you grab a nice Diet Coke and sit out by the pool in Florida and read all about how to strengthen your faith? No. Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And faith is also strengthened by testing the existing faith that you already have. Now, Joseph had faith in its seed form, but he was matured through pain. The strongest people that I've ever met as believers with the deepest character are those who have suffered the greatest in the will of God and have trusted God through it all and come out the other end with such a deepened, rooted character. It's very evident. I feel kind of shallow around some of these people who have suffered so greatly and yet endured it in the will of God. Joseph is like that. Now he starts out 17, naive, but faith in God, but now it's going to be developed. And he is going to learn that Christians are a lot like tea bags. The hotter the water, the more the flavor. Trials will either bend your knee or break your back. Unfortunately, a lot of people become bitter, but there are those who become better. Joseph is one who becomes better, never holds a grudge, never shakes his fist at God. God, why would you change my plans? Because God had better plans for him. Chapter 38, as we said, is a parenthesis. Uh, as you read through Genesis, one would wonder why God would put chapter 38 in there. Because we have this great story about Joseph, and uh, it's broken up as a parenthesis by chapter 38, and then continued in verse 1 of chapter 39. Chapter 38 is a tragic chapter. It's one of the blackest chapters in the Bible. It's the history of Judah, which is not a good history. But it provides two things. Number one, a contrast during this time period 
of darkness to light, of Joseph's brothers to Joseph himself. And number two, it shows you the background genealogically of Jesus Christ. If you were to pick a family background for Jesus, what would it be? I guarantee you not many people would pick the tribe of Judah. Not many people would want their Messiah to identify with such corruption and crud. But as you read the genealogies of Jesus Christ in Matthew and in Luke, you see that there's lots of people that are scattered through that genealogy with sordid backgrounds. Because Jesus identifies with sinners. He came into this world, as we said, to save sinners. So we get the background of the tribe of Judah. And it came to pass in the time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Adulam was a little city about 15 miles northwest of Hebron where Jacob and his sons were kind of setting up as their base. Joseph saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. And so she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. You can already see where this guy's priorities are. They know that the Canaanite women are taboo, off-limits, uh, that the lineage is to be preserved, but this guy has no uh, heart nor concern for spiritual things. Hey, it's a Canaanite woman, good as any other woman. She's a good-looking gal, and he went for it. Now, she conceived and bore a son, and his name is called uh, Onan in verse 4. Now, before we move on, just a warning. If you have not read the Bible all the way through yet, at this point you still are looking at the Bible sort of through these stained glass eyes. You may be surprised just how honest the Spirit of God is in revealing the truth about the characters of the Bible. All of them did not have halos that they had to polish every morning. Some of them were, were quite corrupt. And it's not that God is showing off their corruption. He's just telling you the truth about them. I love that about the Word of God. It does not hide the truth about its heroes. It tells both sides. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. We could say Shelah, but it just sounds too weird, so we'll give it its uh, Middle Eastern kind of an accent on it. Shelah. He was at Kezib when she bore him, about eight miles from Hebron. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Interesting, isn't it? We don't know what he did, but whatever he did, it, uh, it warranted death. God killed him. Such purity at first being preserved. You know, if God followed the same pattern today, in keeping... Uh, people pure. Well, we wouldn't have a population explosion, put it that way. And I guess you could say the same thing about the early church. If the Holy Spirit of God, in being grieved over the introduction of deception and sin within the church, was as grieved and he demonstrated his grief as he did in the early church, the church would thin out its ranks. Case in point, Ananias and Sapphira, who sold their land gave the money to the early church, but they said that they gave all of the money, they sold all of their land and gave it all to the church. Now, they didn't do that. 
they kept part of the money for themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But they should have been honest and said, look, we're giving this much money for the Lord's work. We're keeping the rest for us. But they acted so pious. They were hypocrites. They acted as if they were giving everything to the Lord. And so they walk in and Ananias said, here's a gift. I sold everything, man. It's yours. Peter said, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And he just keeled over backwards and kicked the bucket. They took him and they walked outside with him, buried him. His wife came in and said, hey, you know, and and put on the same act. And Peter said, why have you guys conspired in your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? Look, here's the guys that just carried out your dead husband. They're going to carry you out. Boom, she got killed. Now imagine if that same purity existed today. Think as we're all standing, lifting our hands, saying, I surrender all. Strike. (laughs) Whatever he did, we don't know, but we do know that it warranted death because the Lord killed him. Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife, marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. Now, this is the Leveret Law of Marriage, which became a law written in. It predated the Mosaic Law, but got written into the Mosaic Law later on, that if husband and wife get married and uh, she is unable to have children or he dies and uh, does not get to have a child by her husband to carry on the family name, that the next brother in line marries the widow, they have a child, the child is named after the dead husband to carry on his line, and then after that, this guy's free from that, he's carried on his brother's lineage, uh, then he can be free to do what he wants. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Uh, Don't mess around with God. I guess that's the bottom line, isn't it? Now, what is he speaking about? People have interpreted this in a number of different ways, and I think they have taken liberties beyond what the text states. Certain groups have said that this is speaking about masturbation. Other groups have said this is speaking about coitus interruptus as a means of birth control. Neither are right. What he wanted was the gratification without the responsibility. He refused to enter into the contract of a leveret marriage and raise up, according to the custom, a seed for his brother. He disregarded his brother. He disregarded his father, his brother's wife. And uh, he was in it for just self-gratification. He emitted on the ground. And um, God killed him. As far as the other things we just mentioned. The scripture is silent about these matters. I don't think you can take this as um, a scripture against birth control. I think that is something that is left up to the individual couple of when they want to have children and how how many they want to have. Of course, this has been debated among Christendom and um, I guess they can go at it. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die as his brothers did. So dad's a little cautious now. Thought, hey, two down, one to go. All with this gal, I don't think so. And so he, you know, he puts up an excuse and he says, just wait till my other son is, uh, 
is a little bit older. You know, he has to evaluate the situation. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. In the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted. Went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hiram the Adulamite. It was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a harlot. Now, she dressed up as a harlot to deceive him, but the fact that this guy would look for a harlot and go into a harlot shows his own spiritual state. Mary's a Canaanite, goes into a harlot, and the corruption and the, you know, the, the skeletons in the closet go on. It's thought that she was a harlot because she covered her face. And he turned to her, by the way, and said, Please let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, what will you give me as a pledge until you send it? And he said, well, what pledge shall I give you? And so she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. A signet was a ring that had a seal on it. And it was your particular personal seal. If you wanted to buy something at the market and it was to be delivered to you later on, you would set your signet ring in it. It would prove that you bought it. It would also be your seal, your signature in a document. It was usually worn by a cord. That's the cord that is spoken of here around the neck. And it was kept sort of like a ring on a chain. The staff that was his mark of rulership that was in his hand. And so it was sort of like his wallet. Give me your billfold and your driver's license. And okay, and I went along with it. And so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of the friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, and he did not find her. And then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And she said, There was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in the place. And Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat. You have not found her. And it came to pass about three months later that Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by her harlotry. You know, I know that a lot of people look at the 1990s as the age of sexual revolution. We're sort of proud of that. The barriers and uh, the ancient mores that produced the fiber that has held our society together and giving it its values has now been shattered and we're kind of going off the edge every little time. Madonna and her book, and it's like one more step in, you know, uh, showing more nudity on television and homosexual marriages, and it's like we're proud of the fact that we have become so liberal in our thinking. Listen, the sexual revolution is nothing new. You read this chapter, and they didn't miss a step back then. 
You want to talk about liberation? They had it. There was nothing new under the sun. The heart of man is perverse in every generation, just looking for ways to expose itself. And so Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? It's always easier to see sin on somebody else. She played the harlot and she's pregnant. Oh, really? Burn her. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, By the man to whom these things belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose they are, the signet, the cord, the staff. She's playing dumb at this point. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. This reminds me of another story likened to it, the fellow by the name of David, who looked one evening across the valley there in Jerusalem and saw this beautiful woman Bathsheba taking a bath. He sent for her, had sex with her. She became pregnant. He, David, had Uriah, her husband, killed. Did not repent of his sin. And it says that the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And so Nathan comes in with a brilliant strategy, knowing that man is always more able to see sin on somebody else than himself. See, just to walk in and say, you're a sinner, dude, wouldn't cut it with David. So he tells the story. He said, David, let me tell you a story. There was two men that lived in one city. One was a rich guy and one was a poor man. The rich man had many flocks and herds. The poor man had one female lamb, just a little ewe lamb, so precious that that little lamb was raised with his own children in his own home and became a pet. And they would sleep with it and that little lamb would drink from his own cup, eat from his own table. And the rich man had company coming into town and instead of taking one of the sheep from his own flock and having it killed as a celebration for his friend, that rich man went and took the poor man's one little female lamb, killed it, slaughtered it, and they ate it. Now by this time, David, listening intently, was livid. He said, the man who has done this thing will surely die and restore fourfold what he's taken. Nathan said, you are the man. For thus saith the Lord, David, God has given you so much, the land of Israel, the land of Judah, your master's wives, your master's property, under your hand. And if that would have not been enough, he would have given you more. You took something that was not yours, another man's wife, and recounts his sin. And at that point, as he sees his sin displayed by that parable, he says, I have sinned against God. Nathan said, you're right. But you will not die because of your sin. However, because of your sin, you have given great cause for the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of the Lord. Something that Joseph was very careful when he thought about the temptation of sin in his own life. Judah acknowledged them. He said, she's been more righteous than I. Now you can see what's happening. What a dark background Judah is in comparison to Joseph. You are seeing how that the sons of Jacob, the covenant people, are becoming socially syncretistic. They're becoming very much like the Canaanites, where there's not a distinction anymore between God's people and the Canaanites. So God has a plan to cure them. 
They will go down for a period of years in the land of Egypt, have favor, uh, raise up their ranks in the land of Goshen. Later on, they will become slaves and they will cry out to God. And when they cry out to God, God will send Moses, a deliverer, to bring them into their own land, the land of promise that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's going to teach them a lesson. Um, This teaches us the necessity of separation. God's people are to be different from others. There are to, is to be a marked difference. That doesn't mean that you're to be overtly weird, overtly obnoxious, uh, so that people will push you off. There's some groups kind of like that. I notice that the Jehovah Witnesses relish persecution to some extent. And if you say, you know what, you're not a Christian, and the stuff that you believe in is heretical, and on and on, they kind of oh yeah, I'm being persecuted for righteousness. No, you're not. You're being persecuted for false doctrine's sake. But Christians are to be different markedly from the world around them. Now I know that there's this thought that, okay, we're Christians and we're living in the 90s. We have to be cutting edge. So we have to be cool and hep and very much like the world, becoming all things to all men so that they'll accept us. That's what the Gnostics tried to do with Christianity. They tried to improve it by adding an intellectual kind of a twist to it so that the Greeks and the Romans would think, hey, they're pretty hep. The Bible says, Come out from among them, saith the Lord, and be separate, and touch not the unclean thing. Be, it, be different from those around you. Like that song used to say, Any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to go upstream, doesn't it? Joseph is very different from his brother Judah. So it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was, when she was giving birth, that the one put out his hand. And the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. And it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, he was called Perez, Perez, uh, breach or breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out, the one who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and they called him Scarlet, which is what the interpretation of Zerah means. So this chapter tells us a few things. We already mentioned a couple of them. Also, it shows us that the line of Judah is continued by this incestuous relationship. Now, as you turn in your New Testament to the genealogies of Jesus Christ at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, four women are named in a Jewish genealogy. Something that would perk up the ears of any Jewish historian of that time because women were really not included in genealogies. They were not seen as that important. But according to God, there's neither male nor female. Scythian, bond or free, we're all one in Christ. And the fact of who these four women were are amazing. Tamar is, of course, mentioned. She played a harlot. Rahab is mentioned. She was a harlot in Jericho. She's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Ruth, a Moabitess. The Moabites, you remember, Moab was the firstborn son of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters after they escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah. The Moabites were cursed up to the fourth generation, not being able to worship in the temple of the Lord. And... uh, yet included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ because the Lord came to identify with sinners. That was his background. It's a 
Beautiful story, actually, to follow it through. Oh, yeah, the fourth one is Bathsheba. We already mentioned her in passing. Now, chapter 39. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. I'd just like to introduce this chapter, and we probably won't even be able to finish all the way this entire chapter. We'll see how it goes. But I'd like to introduce it by one important word that you see as in principle all the way through the Scripture, and that's providence. There's a wonderful principle of God of how God works in providence. He providentially, sovereignly reigns over the affairs of men. To me, that's a great comfort, especially with the outcome of the elections. After being so sorely disappointed that my candidate didn't win. And yet, I still have one candidate who did win, and that's Jesus Christ. He's still upon the throne. And the scripture says that God raises up the lowest of men to rule over other men. And that, well, wait a minute, let me finish the scripture. I'm quoting the scripture. Nebuchadnezzar said that. He said, God reigns, God rules, God overrules in the kingdom of men. And he sets up the lowest, the basis of men to rule over them. Nebuchadnezzar was speaking about himself, and it's a true thing. God is still ruling, God is still reigning in his providence. The word providence comes from the Latin word provideo comes from two Latin words, pro, which means before, video, which means I see. It means I see before the event happens. Translated in its meaning, God sees all of the events of your life in advance. It's like God has a videotape up in heaven. He just puts it in. He has your whole life. He can see it in advance. And God can manipulate ordinary events according to his will because God has foresight and foreknowledge. Something that you and I do not have. We don't have that attribute. So it's difficult for us to even grasp providence that God can see, thus manipulate sovereignly the events. That's the whole idea behind election. Behind foreknowledge in the New Testament. Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, a captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now, the captain of the guard would be better translated, captain of the executioners. He's like the ancient Egyptian secret service. Uh, He was in charge of guarding as a bodyguard, the pharaoh and the elite of Egypt. And oftentimes, the captain of the guard would carry out a sentence of death himself when it came to capital punishment. He'd go out there with the axe or with the implement of destruction himself, and he would be the one who would... uh, off the heads. The Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. I love it. He's in Egypt. He's 17. He's wondering, man, what's going on? God, why would you allow this to happen? No doubt those thoughts are tempting him. He's going through that in his mind. Yet, the Lord was with him. Oh, that'll make all the difference in the world, won't it? Have you ever thought about that in your own personal plight? I hate this job. Yeah, but the Lord is with you. I hate this situation. Oh, but the Lord is with you. Oh, man, this marriage, man, it's getting pretty tough. That woman, that man, the Lord is with you. 
And could it be that God in his providence has brought you to that place because he wants to teach you some lessons? You know, I always think, boy, you know, she needs to learn a few lessons. God, would you just do it? Teach her. Goodness gracious. She's so stubborn. Could it be that God is using her to teach you the lesson? Joseph is in Egypt, apart from his family. Lonely, no doubt. Wondering, no doubt. But the Lord is with him. And God makes every... This guy has the Midas touch. Every time we see this guy, no matter where he's at, God blesses him and makes him prosper. And people see the hand of God upon his life. This man's different. Reminds me of the the man described in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor does he stand in the way of the sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of the mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree firmly planted by the rivers of water. His leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You keep your priorities right and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things, Jesus said, will be added to you. God will take care of you. But if you start seeking first your own life, your own little world, and say, well, you know, I want to serve God sometime, so I'll just put it off for another date. I'll mark God on my calendar. Maybe he and I can have lunch next year and work this thing out of serving him. Well, then be in for quite a shock. Because God is not committed to your agenda, but to his agenda. He has a kingdom to build, and you're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Joseph kept that principle. And so, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. And the Lord made all that he did to prosper. (laughs) Love it. Love it. This man has been stripped of his robe, but not of his character. Now, he's about to be stripped of another robe in the next few verses. Let's get to that. So, Joseph found favor in his sight and served him and made him an overseer, second in command of his house, executive assistant, And all that he had, he put in his hand. Now, I want you to notice something about Joseph, you who are employees. Joseph, I think, had a belief. He thought, no matter where I am, I'm going to give it my best. If I end up in a pit as a prisoner, I'll be a good prisoner. If I end up as a slave, I'll be the best slave they ever had. How about that for an attitude? No matter where this guy was, next you're going to see him in prison. And he's such an awesome prisoner. A model prisoner. That the guy who's overseeing the prison thinks, you know, I I can commit all of the other prisoners to Joseph. Now keeping that in mind, let me read what Paul the Apostle tells those of us who are employees in the New Testament. By principle. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, And whatever you do, do it heartily. Get that? Not, okay, grumble, complain, gossip about the boss. Do it heartily. As to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You know what Potiphar was looking for? You know what the keeper of the prison looks for in Joseph? He's looking for a guy who'd work hard. And one of the best witnesses a Christian employee can have is that they work hard or harder than anyone else to give God a good rap. I don't know how many employers I've met who've said to me, you know, Skip, 
um, I don't think I want to hire any more Christians because they always have some flaky spiritual excuse of why they shouldn't do a good job. Let me tell you something. Your employee or your employer does not care how many scripture verses you can memorize or how your prayer life is. He's concerned about how you work when he's paying you nine to five. Oh, but brother, hey, brother, forget it. It's time for you to work and work hard. You know, I decided when I was in Westminster, California, and I was looking for a job in radiology, and I went to the director of the department. Jobs were tough at that time. And uh, I put my application in, and it was a toss-up between three or four of us. And they gave me the same rap. They said, hey, listen, uh, we got your application, and we know you want a job, so don't call us. We'll call you. I said, right. So I called the next day anyway, and I said, hey, uh, what, what's the news? Well, we haven't heard yet, but, you know, we're keeping you in mind. Finally, the next day I went in, and I went into the boss's office. I said, let me tell you something. You don't know me from Adam, but I'll guarantee you something. If you hire me, I'll be the best that you have. Now, that's quite a statement to make, and you have to follow that up by a commitment. When you say that to an employer, you better be able to stand behind it because I was going to make a stand not only as a worker but as a Christian. And when you make a commitment like that and you don't work hard, you're giving God a bad rap. Potiphar saw that God was with him. And he saw that Potiphar was somebody you could trust, or Joseph was somebody you could trust. He worked hard. And he saw that, and he was able to commit more things to him. He gave God a good witness. He was a good worker. So it was, from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house of and in the field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. And Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Okay, now there's an introduction to another phase of this. But Joseph was so trustworthy that his boss didn't even know what, this, what he himself owned. He didn't require a CPA to uh, audit Joseph monthly or yearly. He just knew that Joseph had the integrity and the character that he could trust. Joseph was 17. He was young. He was handsome. Potiphar probably was older and had a younger wife. It was very customary in ancient times for the Egyptian men to marry wives much younger than themselves. To have a 20, 30 a year gap or more was not uncommon at all. Even more in some cases, much more. But, and it was probably that uh, Potiphar was busy. He's old. Um, Joseph was very busy as well in the house where the woman was. And uh, she also is very busy scheming on this young, handsome 17-year-old Hebrew. And so let's read about it. Verse 7. It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And notice how subtle she is. She says, lie with me. Now, talk about a liberated sexual age. Here's this Egyptian woman, someone that her husband has hired is in the house, and she walks up and says, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has in my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
So it was, she spoke to Joseph day by day. She wouldn't give up. That he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. Now just think for a moment. Put yourself, if you can, in Joseph's shoes. He's 17. He's in another country. No one he knows from his background, upbringing, or faith is around him to give him account, to check up on him. It's very easy being young, handsome, and human to make compromises. To say things like, hey, I'm not in my own country. Everybody's doing it. Who will see? Who will notice? But he knew that somebody else was seeing him, and that was God. That God's eyes are in the kitchen, the living room, and the bedroom. That God can see the thoughts that go through a person's mind. That as the writer of Hebrews said, all things are naked and open before him, the one with whom we have to do. God sees it. Joseph knew that, and he lived by that principle. And thus, he didn't compromise. A couple of things that are keys to standing up against temptation. Here's a guy who stood against the stream of temptation in many different ways. Uh, The first key uh, is found in verse 9. Joseph calls sin by its real name. He says, how can I commit this sin? He didn't say, how can I have an affair? You know, I like that. He called sin, sin. We like to retitle it. We like to call homosexuality uh, being gay instead of uh, uh, by its biblical term. We like to call a fornication and adultery an affair or making love. We like to call uh, killing an unborn child pro-choice. We, we have clever titles for sin nowadays. It's more palatable and more politically correct. Joseph called it sin. Is that term offensive? Probably. Did he care? I don't think so. Shakespeare said a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. It'd still be a rose. Sin by any other name stinks as much as it does with its own name. It's still sin and Joseph knew it. And the first key to temptation is he called sin, sin. The second key uh, is found also in that verse... He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see, he recognized that his sin was ultimately against God. Now, if he were to go ahead and fall into that temptation, he would be sinning against Potiphar, against Potiphar's wife, against his own body, but supremely he saw his sin as something that would offend God because he primarily lived under the eye of the Lord. Remember David in Psalm 51? After Nathan finally busted him with that parable, and he starts confessing his sin, and he says, Against thee and thee only, Lord, have I sinned and committed this trespass in your sight. Now, he sinned against Uriah, against Israel, against Bathsheba, his own body. He sinned against his wife, children. But he saw supremely that he offended God. And Joseph has the same kind of thinking here. And that's a strong deterrent, by the way, when you're facing temptation. God is seeing. God will be offended. Um, And then thirdly, look at verse 8. He refused and he said, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. You see, 
He didn't want to ruin his witness before Potiphar. He knew that Potiphar trusted him and committed his home as an overseer and all that he had. And he said, hey, look, I don't want to ruin my witness here. Again, David is a good example. Nathan said, because of your activity, David, you have given the Gentiles a great cause to blaspheme. They'll look at your sin and they think, that's the people of God? This is the king of Israel? The leader of God's people doing this kind of a thing? And the name of God will be degraded because of his sin. So it was, she spoke to Joseph day by day. He didn't heed her or lie with her to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work. None of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he ran outside. First of all, understand that Joseph had a very high view of marriage. He didn't want to sin against God. He didn't want to leave a bad witness with Potiphar. And he brought up the fact that, hey, wait a minute, you're his wife. That's a high view of marriage. Instead of self-gratification, he thought, there's a marriage vow. What God has joined together, let not man separate. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined into his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together, hands off. Paraphrased version. Joseph believed in that. And you know what? A guy who can break, let me rephrase that, a person who can break a marriage vow is capable, I believe, of breaking any vow, any promise. The test of character is found in the home. And if a person can violate his or her marriage vows, they can rationalize just about anything, and it demonstrates that lack of relationship, a poor relationship, a poor view of God. Joseph had a high view. Hey, you're his wife. She grabbed him and said, lie with me. She just, he just split out the door. He just streaked right through the courtyard. Better to lose your garment and to lose your coat, lose your clothes, than to lose your character. And uh, once again, you're going to see how his robe is used as a false testimony against him, just like it was a, chapter, a couple chapters before, when his brother said to his father, Hey, look, here's the robe that we found of Joseph. It's been torn by beasts. She's going to use this as, again, false evidence. So it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called the men of the house, saying, spoke to them, uh, saying, See, he has brought to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. Now, first of all, listen to how she's speaking about her husband. Can you believe it? My husband brought in a Hebrew to mock us. She's blaming it on hubby. Showing the poor relationship that exists between them. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out. That he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. And so she kept his garment with her until his master came home. And she spoke Words like these saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came to me to mock me. And so it happened. I lifted up my voice and cried out. And he left his garment with me and he fled outside. Now we'll stop right there and finish up next week. But before you close your Bible, just a few words of comment. Joseph ran away. He ran away. I think it took much more courage and guts to run away than to yield to the temptation.
You could say, oh, he ran. What a coward. No, that's scriptural. Flee temptation. Flee youthful lusts. And he took it literally, even though that scripture wasn't written at that time. He understood the principle. And he just got out of there. He split. I love that. He lived under the eye of God. You know, there was a, a, a television interview a few years ago. I can't remember. It was a talk show. And the host had oh, some, uh, I think it was a, some kind of a television personality. And they were being very loose on the air. At least the host was. And he was talking about this guy's uh, love life and uh, how many dates and how many women he had. And uh, making some very coarse remarks. The guest who was the star, said something very interesting. He said, well, you know, tell me about your love life. He said, let me tell you something. Any dog can sleep around. It takes a real man to keep one woman satisfied for the rest of your life. Just blew the mind of the host. But the whole audience clapped because at least someone was standing up for a monogamous relationship and a commitment in marriage. And it was great. Any dog can sleep around. And no, anybody can do that. It takes a real man who can keep one woman satisfied for the rest of her life. Joseph held a high view of marriage. He held a high view of personal purity. And he lived under the eye of God. And though she tempted him day after day, he would not yield to it. Contrast this with Samson. Remember Samson? The book of Judges. The judge of Israel, the representative of God before the Philistines. And the children of Israel. Samson did compromise. Though Samson was strong physically, he was a moral wimp. And he toyed with temptation. And after leaving the Gaza Strip, he went to the valley of Sorek. And there was Delilah. And the, the Philistines hired Delilah to come up to Samson and try to find out the secret of his strength. And, you know, he had this attitude of, I can handle it. Why, I'm strong. No problem, I can handle temptation. And so she tempted him. And she was this cute gal. And she would come to him and say, Oh, Samson, you big hunk, you wonderful, good-looking hulk, tell me the secret of your strength. And instead of saying, I rebuke you, or I'm out of here, he said, Well, and he just started toying with it. He said, You know, if uh, you tie me up with seven bowstrings, I'll be weak like any other man. I know the story by heart because Nathan and I play it all the time. So he tied him up in bowstrings and... He was asleep, and she said, the Philistines are upon you. Boom, pop those babies off like they were just yarn. She said, Samson, you've mocked me. You didn't tell me the truth. What's the secret of your strength? He said, well, actually, I did lie to you. If you would tie me up with seven new ropes that have never been used, why, well, I'd be weak like any other man. So he fell asleep. She tied him up with seven ropes, said, the Philistines are upon you. He snapped him, and then she comes in and pouts. Oh, Samson, you've lied to me. How can you say you love me? Tell me the secret. Now, you'd think he'd wake up. You'd think he'd go, hey, wait a minute. I think you're trying to trap me. <laughs> but he didn't do it. Because there's something tantalizing and almost fulfilling about the temptation. Because it's leading somewhere. Oh, okay, I can handle it. Well, tell me the secret of your strength. Okay, look, if you tie up the seven uh, braids of my hair with a loom in these seven areas, tie me up, tie my head up, I'll be weak like any other man. She did it. And he fell asleep, dummy. Philistines are upon you. He woke up, broke through, and finally 
He says, okay, the secret of my strength is I am a Nazarite from birth. I've committed my life to God. And the hair is a sign of that commitment. You cut my hair and I'll be weak like any other man. And so it was. Fulfilled, as the scripture says in the book of Proverbs, by a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. His eyes were put out. They were blinded. He had to work out at the mill. And he became a slave of the Philistines. His great feat was that he, when his hair grew long, he popped the pillars of that temple and killed the Philistines and himself. Wasted potential by compromise. And it's so easy, isn't it? Hey, everybody's doing it out there, folks. Everybody's having affairs. A lot of single people sleep together before they get married. It's just sort of human nature. You see, you hear those messages day in and day out. But it takes a real man or a real woman to say, no, love is patient and I will wait till the time when we're joined together in marriage. And I respect and have a high view of marriage. More than that, I have a high view of God because he's watching everything I think and do and I'm committed to him. Joseph was like that. Mistreated, misunderstood, but living under the eye of God. You know, he could have said, hey, I'm in Egypt. And I tried to serve God, but look where it got me. Maybe I should just do what I want. I'm a little mad at God right now. But he wouldn't compromise. Heavenly Father, we ask tonight, by the example of Joseph, as we are encouraged by the example that he left to us, that, Father, we would be consistently and constantly living under the eyes of yourself knowing that you really do see and hear everything that goes on. Nothing escapes you. And that within our character would be the fabric of integrity and purity. Though we were definitely going against the flow, and in this country too, we are a minority. I pray, Father, that you would enable us to stand up against the tide of corruption. And when people ask us why, we just say, proudly, we serve the Lord. Lord, if you're dealing with areas of poor commitment, I pray that, Lord, tonight we would just respond to you in those areas. If some of us have perhaps been unfaithful to a husband or to a wife, or unfaithful especially to you when it comes to purity in these areas, Lord, that tonight would be a night of repentance and reconciliation, thus restoration. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move, making us like the Holy Spirit, and that is holy. More in your image rather than just trying to fit in and be like other people, that we would be different. Lord, I pray tonight for those in this room who have braved the snow and the ice, and yet they're here tonight, and they they still really don't know why. 